0: Again, the passage is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Leo. Well, good evening, everybody. And you know, I have to say, I I shouldn't be, but I'm pleasantly surprised at how many of you came out on this cold, wet Sunday evening. So I'm just here because I work here, but no, I'm joking. I'm joking. For those of you who are new, um, if you are new, I, uh, a warm welcome to you. Uh, my name is Steve, and we're really glad that you're with us, regardless of what your spiritual or church background may be. And we're going through Hebrews. This will take us right up to Easter. And the theme of Hebrews is persevere, draw near do it together. Uh, Just very simple. Persevere, draw near, do it together. And what we're doing this evening is this passage helps us see this theme of persevere, draw near, do it together in light of covenant. Covenant. Now, that word may sound sterile to you, so it may be helpful to think about it this way. Um, so a few years ago, I took a church planning class at RTS, and uh, Paul Jun, one of my teachers, was teaching it. He'll actually be here in uh, two Sundays, and about a third of this sermon is inspired by teaching he did on Hebrews, just credit where credit's due. But in this uh, teaching on church planning, he said something interesting. He said, you know, when people in the church world start a new church, you know, we just started two years ago. He said, one of the first questions people ask is, what should the core group of the church be like? And what a lot of people assume is that core team of people should be cool and charismatic and hip. And I was like, well, crap, I'm not any of those things. And he said, but here's what I highly recommend you look for, or any like, church planting team look for in a core planting team. And he said, look for the people who exhibit constancy in their lives. Constancy. So, people are going to be committed for the long run. Uh, People who aren't thrown into a turmoil, you know, every time something crazy happens in the news or in politics. Uh, People who don't get too high or too low when things get topsy turvy in the church, but people who just exhibit constancy. And as I was thinking about this, I think it's a little bit of a lost virtue in our culture, right? We're often encouraged to seek out new experiences and, you know, leave relationships if they're not benefiting us in some way. But yet, when you think about the people who've impacted you the most in your life, probably those people were people who were constant with you, right? People who stuck with you even when you weren't necessarily kind to them. And you think about a family. Like, what makes a healthy family? Is it a mom and a dad who buy lots of things for their kids, you know, who are super exciting, all those things may be fine? No, it's just parents who are constant, right? Emotionally constant, physically constant and present with their family. There's a power there. And so as we look at this passage, which is about God being constant with us through covenant, I hope that what this does is we look at this theme of persevere, draw near, uh, not through an individualistic lens, but as we see how God's been constant toward us, this will help us become more constant toward other people as well. And so we'll look at this passage under these three headings as we look at this covenant uh, that God establishes with us. So first, it's that Jesus brings us into a covenant relationship. Number two, this is a new and better covenant. And then number three, this covenant that we're brought into changes how we live. Because first, Jesus brings us into a covenant relationship. Number two, this covenant is new and better and number three, this covenant relationship changes how we live. This isn't just academic. It changes everything. Okay, so first, number one, Jesus brings us into a covenant relationship. You see the word covenant throughout, like, this whole passage, when you see a word repeated a lot. That's a good idea. That's what the passage is about. We'll highlight verse six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And so this whole passage is about being in covenant with God through Jesus. We need to grasp what does the word covenant mean? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Okay, that was a joke for people who were born before the year 2000. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So what what is a covenant? Uh, a covenant is a relationship based on law and love. Law and love. So a parent-child relationship is a covenant. A husband-wife relationship is a covenant. And what's notable about this is, so, so it is based on love, so it's going to be more intimate than a legal relationship, say, you have with a contractor who works on your home. But it's also more durable and binding than just a, quote, love relationship that's based on, you know, the fact, as long as you guys feel warm and tingly, you're going to stay in relationship. So it's both law and love, duty and passion, and it's a covenant that God draws us into with him. And so here's why, one of the reasons why this is noteworthy. Um, You guys may have heard this phrase. Uh, I used to say it, you know, when I was, I think in college is probably when I, when it was the most popular, and I said it the most. It's, um, it's something to this effect. It's when people talk, people, when Christians talk about their relationship with Jesus, they say, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. You guys ever heard that? And there's something to that. Like, one of the things that's trying to be communicated there is good, and that's the fact that as believers, we don't just come in here on Sunday, and we don't, you know, live with Christ throughout the week. It's just kind of this dry, ritualistic practice, but we're in relationship with a personal God who offers us greater intimacy than the best of humans. I think that's what that sentiment's trying to get at, and that's good. But however, I've heard it too many times to not address that Oftentimes, that maxim will be thrown out there to justify living however you want. You know, so, oh, no, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, i.e., Jesus and I, you know, he's not really Lord of my universe. We're on the same footing, and Jesus is useful for getting into heaven, and he gives me some comfort when I'm stressed. But if Jesus ever asks me to go against something that's either in my own desires or against a cultural norm— no, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do because come on, man, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Indeed, it's a relationship, and so the question we have to ask, just like we do with any relationship we're in, is what kind of relationship is it? Because we ask this, you know, implicitly, whether we realize it or not, because the relationship you have with your barista. Is different or should be different than the relationship you have with your boss versus the relationship you have with a best friend or a family member. And so, with Jesus, we have to ask, you know, what kind of relationship are we in? And that's a covenant, which means there's law and love. And so, here's an example how this plays out because the nature of relationship depends on how much law and love is present. So, I'm in a covenant with uh, Kelsey, my wife. If you were to go out to a nice restaurant this evening, and it's a candlelit restaurant, and you were to see me at a table one-on-one with another woman having a candlelit dinner, you should come up to me and say, Steve, what are you doing? And if I say, oh, no, no, like, you don't understand. This isn't a rule-based thing between me and Kelsey. It's a relationship. We love each other. You should slap me first, and then you probably wouldn't put it in these terms, but you'd say, no, Steve, you are in a covenant with Kelsey. And so, therefore, there are laws and boundaries, explicit and implicit, that you need to honor if you want to thrive, if you want to get your wife to thrive, and if you want just that whole system to thrive. And so it is with God. I mean, he brings us into a, rela- a relationship that's more intimate and passionate and life-giving than anything else in the world, my goodness. I mean, we've seen this multiple times throughout Hebrews but also, because it's a covenant, we can't just live however we want. And in fact, it's because we shouldn't live however we want that's the means to which the intimacy is achieved. That's how love always works. Okay, so first we, just, we need to establish that, you know, when we're in a relationship with Christ, it's love and law. And depending on your temperament, you're going to tend to err toward one side or the other, You know, those with more progressive temperaments generally lean toward more the, quote, love side, where God just cares about the experiences that I'm having and the feelings that I'm happening, you know, but I should never have to, you know, deny any of my desires to honor something in Scripture. Whereas those who are, quote, you know, more conservative-leaning, they'll emphasize law and obedience, but there's often very little warmth, very little compassion. But God defies our categories. He's 100% both law and love. Okay, so covenant, law and love, that's what Christ brings us into a covenant relationship. So, number two, what kind of covenant relationship is this? And uh, what Hebrews 8 tells us is it's a new and better covenant. So, uh, look at verse 13 with me. He makes it explicit a couple times. This is one place. So, this is after he's summarizing the covenant we're brought into with Jesus. And speaking of a new covenant, that's the covenant we're in now from uh, Jesus coming onward, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, and growing old is ready to vanish away. So when the author references this old covenant, he's referring to the covenant relationship that God brought the geopolitical nation state of Israel into. When he brought them out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery, and he brought them, it was still by grace, he redeemed them from slavery first, and then he brought them into a covenant with them. But now, since Christ has come... The covenant that God has with his people is no longer with just one geopolitical entity. It's no longer geographically based or ethnically based, but it's spiritual. It's expanded to reach every nation in the world. And anyone who trusts in Christ is now in this new covenant. And it's new. So there's now a new expression. It's not that the old covenant was wrong. There's really, because sometimes we beat up on the old covenant. It wasn't wrong. Just it was provisional and it was always, and it was incomplete. It was always meant to point toward the union Jesus brings us into. And so here's something worth pointing out. Is just, we talk about the fact that this is new. Because this is a question that comes up, and you might be here exploring the faith, and you've wondered this question, and you might be here, and you're a Christian, and you've been asked this question, and you're not really sure how to answer it. And it's this critique, and I get it because I've asked the same thing, that's often leveled at Christians, and it goes something like this. It says, you know, why do Christians pick and choose what's in the Bible? You know, so it seems like Christians sometimes can be really militant when it comes to, you know, you you need to forgive your enemies and exercise gentleness regardless of how somebody is treating you. Or you need to honor the marriage and sex ethic that Jesus gives in the scriptures. So you're all about those, but I see tons of passages in Leviticus, for example, where it says you shouldn't eat pork or you shouldn't eat shellfish Or you shouldn't wear fabrics that have mixed cloth in them. Or you shouldn't plant two different kinds of seeds in the same field. (laughs) So it just seems to me you're just picking and choosing based on, you know, what you want to follow and what you don't. And that's a good question. And so the answer is, like, how we resolve this is it comes down to this issue of covenant. We are now in a new covenant. And so in the old covenant, uh, there were three types of laws that God gave Israel. The first was ceremonial laws. So these were laws that pertain to sacrifice. Hebrews talks a lot about that. Hebrews, uh, um, laws that pertain to what you should eat and not eat. And most of these laws were about delineating the fact that Israel served a different God than the gods of the surrounding nations. So there were ceremonial laws. Second ca- category of laws were civil laws. You know, how do you exercise jurisprudence when somebody commits a crime? And there are all kinds of laws for what to do if you intentionally committed a crime, if you unintentionally committed a crime. And then number three, there was the moral law, uh, summed up in the Ten Commandments. And so when Christ comes and inaugurates a new covenant, Hebrews talks about it, Jesus himself, during the Lord's Supper, he says this is the cup of the new covenant, indicating there's something new coming. What he does is he abolishes the first two categories— he abolishes the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, what you should eat and not eat, different subject for a different day, but he abolishes them. Okay, the civil laws now go away because we no longer live in a theocracy like Israel did during the Old Testament, but now the, the church is a spiritual reality, and we submit to our governing authorities who are over us, not tied to the church. Okay, so the, the civil laws go away, but what does remain is the third category, the moral law. Okay, so Jesus emphasized this, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. He's expanding on the Ten Commandments, like teaching us how to walk in those ways. And one reason why the moral laws stick, in addition to just because Jesus says so, that's always a good answer, is because the moral laws are never arbitrary. They're always an expression of God's character, and therefore what's best for human flourishing in all times, places, and peoples. And so as you think about you know, certain like, commandments we follow in the Bible versus others we don't, it's not that Christians pick and choose. It's that We're simply trying our best to read the scriptures as the scriptures and Jesus himself teaches us to read them. Okay, what laws do we follow versus— Hopefully this, this is helpful because I this these, these types of things come up and can be confusing for those who have been in the church for a long time. So it's a new covenant, but it's, jo- it's not just new, it's better. It's a better covenant. So go back to verse 6. Uh, the, all of Hebrews has been about how Christ is better, and now he's talking about specifically a better covenant. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that's much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So when we look at the old covenant, here's what it was like. If you look at verses 8 through 9, it talks about it. In verse 9, it says, this new covenant won't be like the old that I made with their fathers, speaking of the nation of Israel, on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so here's what happens. God rescues them from slavery. He brings them out into a new covenant, and he says, if you obey me and follow my statues, you'll receive blessing. If you disobey me, here are the curses that you'll receive, the covenant curses you'll get for disobedience. And you say, well, that sounds really harsh. Why would you give curses for disobedience? And, Think about it this way. Think about it in light of my own upbringing. So uh, when I was growing up, you know, my parents aren't perfect, uh, but they're wonderful parents in in many respects of the word. And growing up, my parents loved me and my siblings. My parents really wanted my siblings and I to have fun. I don't think there was ever a morning where my parents woke up and said, you know, I want to make Steve's life as miserable as possible today. Okay, no, they they loved us. They cared for us. They wanted to mature into responsible adults. And so here's how an average week would go. We're in covenant with them. So they say, okay, we want you guys to have a good time. We want to do some fun stuff this weekend. So this week, all we ask is you don't fight with your siblings and just do your homework. That's all we're asking. (laughs) But what would would my brothers and, and my sister and I do every week? We'd always break covenant. And because my parents, and I'm glad for this, didn't want us to grow up into people who were insufferable to be around, I don't know, maybe you guys would think differently, (laughs) or just people who are generally useful to society, they would discipline us when we broke covenant. And if you want to think about the story of God with Israel, or just God with humankind in general, it's a repeated cycle of God continuing to offer Grace and mercy and patience and us breaking covenant over and over. That's all the Old Testament. The Israelites continuing to break covenant and God prolonging the time until he would give them curses. And this wasn't a small thing either. I mean, when the Israelites would break covenant, one, it was akin to adultery. That's how God describes it. But two, when they would worship the gods of the surrounding nations, they would adopt their cultic ceremonial practices, which would include, you know, like orgies in the temple and sacrificing their children. It, this was awful stuff. And so what's God going to do? Because he's good, and he wants to bless and prosper his people, like, he wants to prosper them. But because he's good, he wants justice to be upheld. And so how does he resolve his, his love, right, and his law, his compassion, and his justice? And that's where Jesus comes in as the mediator of the new covenant. And in order to get this, it can be helpful to think about someone in your life who is profoundly irritating or just really hard to be around, like someone who it seems like their MO is just to make your life as miserable as possible, <laughs> okay, to the fact that you don't even want to see him again, because that's how we, we are with the Lord. And, and the more we mature, the more this becomes profoundly wondrous to us. So God sends Jesus, and the point of Jesus coming is to be a covenant keeper in our place. And so as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it changes how you read the story the life of Jesus. As you see Jesus touching the leper to heal him, as you see Jesus look at the woman who's caught in adultery and she's surrounded by a mob who's about to stone her and put his own life on the line to rescue her from her shame, is you see Jesus be constant in prayer and indefatigable in his patience toward people who are very unkind to him. When you see Jesus respond to the mocking and the spitting and the whipping that he gets before his crucifixion, not with outrage and retaliation, but forgiveness and mercy, what you're watching isn't just Jesus doing something because of its part of his nature, although it is. You're watching, Jesus is doing all of this in order to be a covenant keeper in your place. Every one of those acts of obedience obedience is for you. And then after living a covenant-keeping life, he goes to the cross, and what the cross is about isn't just his death, it's him getting the covenant curse, getting cut off from the land of the living, getting judged on, on behalf of us for our sins so God can exact justice. So he gets the covenant curse, so you and I can get the covenant blessing. And so when you are trusting in Jesus, it's not just that he sees somebody who, you know, has never failed in the past or never rebelled in the past. It's much more personal than that. When God engages with you, he delights to know you and be known by you to the same degree that he delights to know and be known by his son, Jesus. Jesus. So is, is Jesus a better mediator of the covenant compared to the old you know, human mediators of the Old Testament? Yes, he is. Is Jesus more constant toward you than the best of human beings you are going to encounter in your life? Yes, he is. And that's why we come here and we sing his praises and that's why all, what we're all about here is living in light of the gospel because this news should change every single thing that we do and how we feel and how we engage with other people. He brings in a far better covenant that's far more stable, far more secure, far more intimate than the Israelites had under the old covenant. Okay, so we get a better mediator, Christ. And then number two, we get promises, better promises. And these are given in mainly verses 10 through 12. We'll just highlight uh, two. Uh, Jeremiah gives this to the people of Israel. It's God promising that these um, promises are coming in the future when Christ comes. And the first promise he says is, when you come in a relationship with Christ, uh, verse, uh, the second half of verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the problem with the Old Covenant, one of, one of the issues with the Old Covenant was, no matter how many times the people tried to obey the law, they couldn't do it. They wanted to obey the law, they tried to obey the law, They wrote God's law on their wrists like bracelets. They wrote God's law on their heads like headbands. But no matter how much they tried to do, they could not keep it. And the reason was because it worked on the principle of outside in. In case if I can just memorize the laws, if I can try hard enough, if I can tape the laws to my forehead, then I can change my heart by doing all these acts of obedience. But that doesn't work. It's like finding out you have a tumor, and then applying, you know, skin care treatment onto your skin, it doesn't go deep enough. It's all external. And, you know, our modern culture, which promises, you know, liberation and freedom and happiness, just like every other religion in the world outside of the gospel, our modern culture is based on the same principle, outside in. Okay, if you do A, B, C, then you can live the fulfilled life you're looking for. We have to ask, how are we doing? Yeah, we're doing better on the metrics of physical health, of economic stability, of safety, but how are we doing on the metrics of intimacy, anxiety, joy, compassion? Because the problem isn't we need to find a new rule of life. The problem is we need new hearts. And so when God says here, I will put my law into their minds and I'll write them on, your, on their hearts, what he promises is that when you trust in Jesus, God gives you effectively a heart transplant and he changes your heart so that it's no longer stony and dead and callous toward the beauty of Jesus, but it's vibrant and beating with life toward the wonder of who Jesus is. And so it makes the new covenant, another reason that it makes it so amazing is it's inside out. And so here's why this matters, because to be given a command or a directive with no power or promise to do it is a millstone around your neck. Okay, it's a burden God never designed for you to bear. But what he does through Christ, when he makes your heart new, yes, you're still going to wrestle with sin. Yes, you're still not going to be fully the person you want to be until Christ returns. However, you actually have new power that you didn't have before to look like Jesus in your life. And so I think just some of you may need to know that because there's these things about you that you're like, how do I keep messing this up? How come I can't keep doing this no matter how many times, you know, I set a new resolution every single week? But you really can let aside or set aside that anger that you've been holding to for so long and give it to God to judge so that you can experience the freedom of forgiveness. You really can stop looking at that thing on the internet or on your, on your streaming service that you know is just a means of dealing with stress or self-medicating in a way that you know you shouldn't. You really can be a better friend. Moms, you really can be a better mom. Dads, you really can be a more joyful dad. You really can be a better employee, a better manager. How? Not through, you know, positive self-talk and affirmations, on the, although maybe that has those, those, have the, those have their place, but God actually breathing new life into your soul through Jesus to now inna- allow you to do the things that you otherwise would find impossible to do. This is... Good news. Okay, so we're promised new power. Second, we're promised new freedom. Verse The second half of verse 11 into verse 12, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. The gospel is for everybody. Uh, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Is there someone in your life where you may have wronged them in the past or you just blew it big time in the past. And every time you engage with them, they hold that over you. It might be explicit or it might just be implicit. Like condemnation is just emanating out of them and you know they're remembering what you did. Just in honesty, consider if you ever view God that way. Like, you know he forgives, but there's a pocket of your life that you know is so ugly or just not what it should be that God holds that over you. Or maybe he takes the approach of like a lot of us do in relationships. It's like, oh yeah, we can still talk and have communion, but we're not going to talk about that really awkward part over there. And when God promises, I will remember your sin no more, What he's trying to tell you is I'm not another overbearing taskmaster or parent or boss who says, do better, be better, try hard. No, in the cross, you're forgiven, full and free. And so when you come to me, who I see is my beloved son. You are just as attractive to me on the inside and out as my own eternal son Jesus is. That's what you get. You know, there's, there's an author named uh, Dane Orland. He wrote a great book called Gentle and Lowly. And he, at one point in the book, he said, you know, the greatest gift my father gave to me wasn't, you know, teaching me really great virtues like grit and courage or teaching me practical life skills, you know, fixing a piece of machinery or whatever. He said, the best thing my dad did for me was he helped show me that neither my sins nor my sufferings ever repel the heart of Christ from me. And in fact, when Jesus sees the ugly parts of me, he moves closer to me, not further away. And I, I think if, if I had a wish for anybody coming into this church, whether you're here for a Sunday or for 10 years, it's that that's the thing you get out of this, <laughs> out of being in this church, this new covenant God gives you, and that there is nothing in your life weakness, okay, or sin or suffering that will ever repel the heart of Christ from you, which also means it never repels the heart of God the Father, because they're the same. Okay, so amazing new promises, new power, new freedom. How does this change our lives, if it hasn't already? Hopefully it has. Okay, so just a couple closing applications here as we think about how should this change our life, okay, as as we look out. And the first thing is, go back to verse 10b, part 2. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So this should, this new covenant should give us a new approach to obedience. And so counterintuitively, perhaps, once you're brought into the new covenant, and you're, which means you're trusting in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and newness of life, almost paradoxically, you should care about obedience more, not less. Okay, why should you care about obedience? Not because it makes us superior to other people. I mean, by definition, the gospel says we're as flawed as the worst in the world. Okay, not to try to pry favor from God's grubby fingers like we often tend to think. That's legalism. The order matters here. It's not, okay, we obey and then God brings us. No, it's God has been so constant with us and done everything possible to stick with us and bring us into this new covenant that now since I'm given a new heart, It's not that I just am able now to obey God's law more, but I actually want to. That's the promise here, by having the law of God written on your heart. And so just a question to think through is, do you resent God's law in any way? And usually, it's probably not the whole thing, right? But there are certain aspects of the Bible, right, that just rub against you. Um, Do you resent God's law in any way, or You know, you do follow God's law, or you try, but as you do it, as you follow, you think like this is really just God's way to stop me from living a full life. And if you do in love, like one of the questions this test, this text is asking us to ask is, have you really grasped grace? Have you really grasped the gospel, and the character of God? He redeems you first. He loves you first. He's committed to you first. But a clear fruit that that has happened is that you want to live in accordance to His character. That's number one. Number two, there should be a profound new confidence about us. Um, I was just I was reflecting on this over the past two weeks. As a couple things in my life have become a lot more unsteady than I thought they were, and. Oddly, even though we, in a lot of ways, our time and place is the most safe and secure time like human history has ever had, there's also an anxiety crisis. Like, we're just, for a lot of reasons, we're very anxious people. And yes, there can be medical reasons for that and so forth, but often one of the reasons why we get so anxious (laughs) is because we look to something other than Christ to be our constant. It might be a person, it might be a job, it might be your bank account, it might be a relationship— And when you look to something created to be your constant, you're asking it to do something that it cannot do. And if you see Christ's constancy toward you on the cross, and you see his constancy toward you as he raises from the dead and then indwells you with his spirit, that guarantees you that you have someone no more more sure sure or constant that you can grab a hold of when life gets topsy-turvy. No person, no job, No money can do that for you. Number three, after a new approach to obedience, new confidence. uh, Finally, um, a new commitment that we have toward other people. And uh, I mentioned this briefly in the the beginning, I think. Um, You know, there's this movement in our culture now where it's almost encouraged to— sometimes it is very encouraged to just leave relationships that you're in, be it friendships, family relationships, church relationships— if they start to cost a little too much, okay? And part of that comes from, there, there's also a movement to, you know, help people get out of abusive relationships that they're stuck in. So yes, amen to that. But like we often tend to do is once we have a principle, you know, everything looks like a nail, we hit it like a hammer. And now often in the name of self-care, okay, as soon as a relationship just starts to get a little difficult, or we have to exercise forgiveness four times instead of three, Both in our nature and in in the narrative at large that we swim in, we're encouraged to leave. And so this this can be a very nuanced subject, but I'm just trying to, to follow a clear implication that's in the scriptures. When you see God's constancy toward you, that should change our constancy toward other people. Okay, to be constant toward others, only those who are constant toward us, that's very, that's Darwinian, that's very natural to do. What's unnatural, okay, is to exercise care and compassion toward others, even when they're unkind to us. It's one of the hardest things we can maybe do when we look to Christ and see his constancy toward us, and then hold to the promise that he's given us his spirit to allow us to do what we can't otherwise. We can go and do likewise. We've maybe just one person in your life. um, Exercise the power that Jesus has given you to show some compassion toward them. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this new covenant, and I pray for um, our whole church that this won't just be an academic exercise, but we'll revel in it, delight in it, uh, and most of all be captured anew uh, by your commitment to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.